So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together here to hear your word to us and about us, the word that actually makes us. We thank you for the gift of our bodies and ourselves. And we pray that in the light and in the wisdom of your dear Son, we might gain knowledge of who we are in him. All these things we pray in his name. Amen. So last night, I kind of tried to set up sort of a a basic problem and began with this kind of conflict or opposition, at least a paradox of, of the modern world, most Christians included, uh, and virtually everybody else, feeling like they kind of know what a human being is, sort of assuming it, and then also having all these like, really radical points of contact which suggest maybe, maybe we don't. Uh, but, but the things that we, we, we assume, this, this decision-making power, this freedom of the will, it's really where we tend to locate, roughly, our picture of a human being. And then we, we got right up to the edge of talking about the human being as made in the image of God, which is really what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, which is to say, we, we got up to the edge of talking about what God says in speaking each human, each of you, into existence. And in order to say more about that, I think we should begin by doing two things. The first is I'm going to give you a bit of a tour through the religion of the ancient Near East and how it pertains to this question. That seems like a weird place to start, but we're going to go with it. Uh, Specifically, as concerns what divine images are and what a human being is. And then we're going to go back in after doing a little bit of that and look carefully at what's happening in Genesis 1. And then through that, it's some other Old Testament texts. Uh, I hope you all got a handout. Uh, If you don't, grab one. That'll take care of you through the entirety of this morning. But we're not going to be looking at it just this second. I'll tell you when you can... I mean, you can look at it whenever you want. I'm not going to make rules about this. So to begin with... As I think we're all aware, not only Israel spoke about divine images. Everybody in the, wor- in the ancient world had images of gods. Now, it, it, it actually might help for me to start with a little bit. I, I think last night I mentioned um, a fellow named uh, Lessing. And he sits at an interesting point in history, in the end of the 18th century in Germany, where there is a, there's a, an intellectual revolution going on. And it's a revolution we don't talk about often enough. Sometimes philosophers and academics will talk about what happened in the Enlightenment. But there's a major, major shock that was happening in sort of the mindset of Christians in Europe about that time. There was a discovery made that absolutely shook us to our core. 
very frequently, sometimes people will talk about these sort of major revolutions in human thinking, and they'll talk about, well, maybe, maybe it was a big shock to people's thinking when we realized that the Earth isn't the center of the universe, and maybe it was a big shock, for example, you know, Darwin's notion of evolution. I don't want to downplay either one of those, although I think the second one may be more important than the first, but I think this one that happened in the late 18th century is actually more important in a weird way than either of them in, in shaking the thinking of a lot of Christians. And it works this way. You had the emergence and had had for some time of a little more of a skeptical mindset towards the Bible in Europe. There were people who were flat out doubting the miracles, the teaching about the Trinity, the resurrection of Jesus, these kinds of things. But the assumption of all of these people was still in sort of within Christian Europe that the Bible was probably the oldest book available to humanity. That Hebrew was probably the oldest language. They didn't have any firm evidence of any civilization older than that. I mean, say, well, yeah, the pyramids existed. They didn't know how old the pyramids were. They had no idea. And in the late 18th century and the early 19th century, something very strange happens, which is through uh, a couple of discoveries. And a lot of this happened through Germans. And, okay, so why did this happen through Germans? Um, why were Germans sort of on the leading edge of these world-shaking intellectual discoveries? There's an odd answer to this, and it's that the Germans didn't have an empire. There wasn't even a united Germany. The British had an empire. The French had an empire. They had big swaths of the world that they were gobbling up. And so they could, people could go to these places and study. And so the British started to learn things about India and maybe about China. And the French could look at this and that in Africa and wherever else they were. The Germans didn't have any other place that they had. And so if they wanted to get in on this sort of... Europe suddenly thinking about the rest of the world, they had to do it via libraries. That's how they did it. And so they started studying languages, hardcore. And through a process that didn't take that many years, they learned to read a few languages just in a little bit. And one of them was ancient Egyptian. And the other is they started to be able to learn the, uh, the writing of, of, of ancient Mesopotamia. Sumerian and Akkadian, the languages of the predecessors of the Babylonians and then the Babylonians. And when they started to be able to read these ancient forms of writing, the shock was profound. Because all of a sudden they had hard evidence of civilizations way older than ancient Israel. Far older. And they had evidences, evidence of belief systems older than that in the Bible. So all of a sudden, the Bible isn't sort of the original book. It's just one book or collection of writings within the flow of human history. And boy, was that disoriented. Like in a really profound way that shook a lot of, a lot of people. So then there becomes this, this rush to sort of dive in and to study the religions and the cultures of 
these ancient civilizations, to learn what could be learned about Egypt and about Mesopotamia. And it's, yes? Just wondering, uh, what century are you in? I'm talking about a revolution that occurs from the end of the 18th until the end of the 19th century, really. It's, it's ongoing. But in the second half of the 19th century, this blossoms in a new form of biblical scholarship where there is suddenly comparative work going on between the Old Testament and the religious and, and, and the writings of peoples around there, but that are even older, right? Suddenly you can compare stories in the Bible to stories that are in, in written form significantly older than the Bible. Um, right, so the, 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 the epic of Gilgamesh is much older than any specific text we have in the Bible. Like, whoa, this is like the earliest story we have in humanity. This is fascinating. And it has within it a flood story with a guy named Utnapishtim. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, <laughs> so, Studying these, uh, the, the, these things, that starts to shed an interesting kind of light on the Bible and people start doing all sorts of stuff with it. So let's talk about these, these religious systems a bit, um, just in really general form. So everybody in the ancient world had images of God. So when I say an image of a God, I mean a physical image of a God, you know. You... <coughs> there. And they don't have to be... They don't look much like anything. You can find examples in the ancient world of a barely human-shaped rock, right, being worshipped, especially if it's a meteorite, something that fell from the heavens. Ooh, right? This is even better than, than something you shape yourself. But or you'd have elaborately carved, painted statues. Now, if you have an image of a god, where would you keep that? What's the natural place to keep something like that? In a temple. Sometimes they have, you know, they have household ones too, depending or whatever, but especially in a temple. Um, and the term I'm going to use for this is a cult image, not cult in the sense of a, of, of a, of a community's practice of worship, not in guys in black robes and knives and somebody on an altar, probably. Um, in a temple. If we look at ancient Mesopotamia, people in what's now Iraq, well, they start building temples, and they, well, that's uneven, but they, they often look a little like this, right? This thing called, step thing called a ziggurat. Um, some of the, the, the bigger ones are. We have some of these that still exist, right? Um, they're, they're ruins, but they, they still exist. The huge mounds of bricks are <coughs> immensely old. Uh, and you get to thinking about the amount of effort it would have taken people to build something like that, let alone a lot of them. It requires a very high level of social organization, pouring a lot of resources into building essentially an artificial mountain, which is a place for somebody to offer sacrifices to the gods and to keep these cold images. Um, and if you start reading these these, these ancient texts, you'll realize that the entire sort of system of human life, the whole organization of society, is centered on this. Everything centers around it. So, 
that, that, that everything for the, the, the workings of the economy, the thinking about government, the thinking about religion and temples, the thinking about agriculture, they're all tied into one thing. So this is how this works. So there's a, um, an, an ancient Babylonian text we have in, in, in a few forms, and it seems to represent a myth that's pretty common across the ancient Near East. So there's related myths in the area north of <coughs> Palestine, come from a place called Ugarit, um, which our versions of that stuff come from. My gosh, when was Ugarit active? I'm, I'm spitballing here, like 1800-ish BC is like a good kind of time period for looking at Ugaritic things, I think. Uh, earlier than most of the stuff in the, in the Old Testament. But it's geographically not that far away. That's over on the coast, right? That's by the Mediterranean. That's different from over in Babylon. And you, you can see some commonalities in the myths. Here's one of them. How does the world get made? How does the world happen? Okay? In the Babylonian creation epic, uh, the text is called Enuma Elish, which means went, went on high. Uh, you have a sort of a primordial combat take place. You have a, uh, an evil, uh, uh, among the gods, you have a conflict breakout, and you have an evil deity, a, uh, a thing that is a little bit serpentine, a little bit dragonish, a little bit scaly, represents um, chaos, the abyss, the deep, uh, sometimes the sea, uh, in the Babylonian version called Tiamat. And this one sort of rises up as a challenge to the rest of the gods. And among the gods, one stands up, not the first god, not at this point the greatest of them exactly, but becomes that, uh, named Marduk. There are other versions. That's the Babylonian version. It's Marduk. In, 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 um, in Assyria, it would be, it would be it, it, different versions of a slightly different god stand up and, and take on this role. But it takes on the role of doing battle against Tiamat, of putting down this sort of rebellion, of forcefully defeating chaos and imposing order. And in the course of this combat, kills Tiamat, makes the world out of her body. And then either out of her blood or out of a lesser subordinate but rebellious and evil deity, human beings are made. And human beings are made then out of the, you think, oh, it's out of a divine substance. It's out of the blood of a god. That's saying something really positive about human beings, right? That's out of the blood of an evil god. Saying something extremely negative about human beings. And what they're made for, humans are specifically made for, is to be slaves to the gods. Human beings are made so that they can go and dig ditches. And think, think about this in terms of Iraq, right? Um, you, you, especially southern Iraq, you get places that you, you get the Tigris and the Euphrates. You get periodic flooding. Um, but you have to do a lot of irrigation in order to make all of this work. You have to dig everything right, whatever else. Farming involves just a lot of digging ditches. 
So the gods need human beings to do all of this obnoxious work of digging ditches so they can grow food, so they can give it to the gods. Sacrifice. So this is what the system is then. The king acts in the place of Marduk, which is to say he goes and imposes violently, imposes order on the surrounding chaos. That is, he imposes law and order, he defeats enemies, he rules. And he does that then so human beings who can act as these slaves to the gods can grow food, can build temples, can feed the gods. That's what their offerings are, to keep this sort of divine economy going on so that they continue to be blessed with divine favor. The whole world is oriented around this. So the gods can eat and they don't have to work. Now when I talk about how gods work in this system, there's an important thing to realize. You're going to say, well, okay, so yeah, you're offering some sort of symbolic thing in front of a symbol of the God in the temple. That's how we think about it, that these are symbols. This is not how they thought about it at all. The statue of the God in the temple is the God. Do we have a sort of a clean separation between kind of mental things and physical things? We, we, we distinguish those very easily, and so one thing can represent another, but they're not the same thing. In their way of thinking, that's not how things are at all. Um, it, 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 there's, there's, the notion is that a god can have a body, but the body is fluid. It can be in more than one place at a time, in more than one different form. And that they can be interacted with in a way. And it's not just a statue. It's not just sort of my idea of, of the god. Um, heavenly bodies are worshipped. Astral worship, worship of the stars, the planets, the sun, and the moon is enormous in the ancient Near East. Shows up in the Bible a lot, too. It's made reference to very often. It was clearly a big thing in Israel and Judah um, because it was a big thing with their neighbors. And we'll get to this when we look at Genesis 1, but you'll see in Genesis 1 that the words sun and moon are not used because those are the names of God's. You say, oh, well, there's got to be a difference between the sun and the sun god, right? No. No, there isn't. It's the same word. The word shamash, which means sun, also means the sun god. Uh, There's no difference between the sun in the sky and the sun god, and there's no difference between the statue of that god in the temple and the sun god. These are physical manifestations of the deity. In in, 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 uh, Babylonian Sumerian writing, you get a... uh, in their cuneiform writing, you get a, uh, a little sort of star marker. So this is thing, and they take like a, a stylus made out of a reed, a little wedge-shaped thing, and they press it into clay, right? And they put one of these next to it. I think it's just three months before, I don't remember. I don't actually read Akkadian, um, so. <laughs> but this is called a dinger. It's this little star you stick next to a name. And you stick it next to that name, because what does it look like? It looks like a star. That means that the word that's coming after this, the name you spell out in more of these little pop pop pops, is the name of a god or a heavenly body, which is to say it's the same thing. 
that God is the heavenly body, is the statue in the temple. And they had rituals then for how does this get to be, well, so I found a rock, or I found, I, I, I made a statue of a god. Does that mean if I sit there and whittle the shape of what I think maybe a god looks like, or I call it that, is that automatically the god? No. No, I have to have a special way of doing this, right? Um, I mean, we hardly ever open a church without having some kind of a service to consecrate or something. There were rituals for turning a statue somebody had made into a god. For giving life to it, for breathing life into this statue so that it becomes the physical presence of the god so that it can see. Watch what you're doing. So that it can hear, hear your prayers, so that it can speak, give words through the priests who can tell them to you. So that it can eat, receive offerings. Uh, all of, and so it can move around. It would actually move these around in the procession. Those are the gods moving from place to place. Uh, so in, 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 in Babylonia, this ritual is called the Mishpi, uh, or the Mishpi and Pitpi, the washing of the mouth or the washing and opening of the mouth. The Egyptians had a, a parallel one uh, called the, um, called the, the and now this is harder because we're not, I think we're a little less sure about how to pronounce Egyptian, but Wepet Er uh, is what I found on this. And that could be used to give life to a specific statue or to the mummy of a pharaoh or to actually a whole temple complex in one case. We have, point is we have these, yes, I've got a question here. No, it wasn't very limited at all. Yes, okay, so, so the question is, were they, did they think that the gods were limited to a specific, you know, just like the sun and the idols? It is, it, they, there's not necessarily, so we don't have like, abstract theological texts from these periods. What we have is descriptions of rituals and myths. Um, But what you can gather from those is that divine bodies can be in different places at once, in various different ways. So there's not a hard limit on this, but that doesn't mean, for example, you're free to just make as many idols as you want and say, well, the God is in each of these places. You're not, it's, it's, it's more subtle than that. I'm sure there were rules and principles involved that we don't understand. But we have copies of the actual rituals for how they did this. And so the mission, this is how it worked. This is how the Babylonian version worked. Um, a craftsman will take a statue, make it out of wood in a shop. And then he'll take the statue and go down by the river. And he'll throw all of his tools into the river and make a, a verbal disavowal to having made the thing at all. I didn't make this with my hands. In other words, it's a divine creation. It wasn't me. They'll even do a thing and they'll hold out his hands and they'll pretend to cut them off to show, look, I have, I have no power to make a god. This thing has been created. And then so as they dress it and paint it and a priest comes and washes the mouth carefully to the name of the ritual comes from, using a mixture of, of honey and some other stuff. Old Testament passages where the prophet is told, Ezekiel is told, eat this scroll and it was sweet as honey. Ezekiel was well aware of this ritual. You can show that from the text of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel was well aware of how this was done in the Babylonian world. Um, 
We'll talk about that in a bit when we get to Ezekiel. It's really interesting. Uh, and there's, there's all these sort of steps to the statue being given life to be the God. That's what an image of a God is. But you asked, can it be more than the idol or the sun in the sky or whatever? Yes, yes it can. Because there's one other class of objects that are specifically called image of, God, image of a God in some of these texts. Again, in different ways. I mean, the, the Egyptian religion is not the same as it was in Babylonia, but they have certain ideas in common. And this is one of them. In Egypt, the pharaoh can, or a high-ranking high priest can, under the right conditions, be referred to as the image or likeness of a specific god. In Babylonia as well, the king, say the king of Babylon, can be referred to as the image of Marduk, the god who powerfully defeated Tiamat and imposed order. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a text I've read that says um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ritual text for a Babylonian priest. And it says the word of the priest is the word of Marduk. The priest is the image of Marduk. So yes, a human being under the right conditions can be the physical manifestation of the God. An image of a God. This is really interesting background for looking at this odd phrase, image of God, in Genesis. <laughs> uh, what this meant, that doesn't mean the human being walking around just all the time this. Like, Pharaoh, when he's taking a nap, or, you know, going to the bathroom, or brushing his teeth, or whatever, is Marduk doing those things. That's not true. It's only under very specific conditions when he's doing what the God does. But it does mean that when... Uh, I just mixed Pharaoh and, and Marduk. That's impossible. It's two different religions. That's all right. Uh, but it does mean when the king of Babylon is out defeating all of the surrounding peoples and imposing order and proper worship of the gods and everything on them, then he is Marduk doing those things. So you imagine it causes a crisis in Babylonian religion when Babylon is defeated by the Persian Empire. Right? Is that a defeat of Marduk when the king of Babylon falls in battle to an opposing king? Yes, actually that is. That's Marduk losing. That's why it's also a crisis in the religion of, of, of ancient Israel when the temple is destroyed. Well, does that mean God was defeated? A lot of people would have said, yes, that's exactly what that means. I guess he wasn't the strongest. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> some adjustments in thinking have to take place. But we should, we should at first recognize how close to the thinking of their neighbors, most, in, in, in base, certain basic assumptions, most of the thinking of the Old Testament is. So, we have people who can be images of gods when they're doing the right things. Now, so what's the overall picture here? Yeah, humans are sort of a little bit divine, but we're also twisted, we're corrupted, we're natural slaves, actually, slaves to the gods, but in the right circumstances, we can also be divine images. Now, let's go into Genesis 1 and see how this sort of pops out. Okay, uh, so I'm going to go fast when I read this and then just pop into the right places. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. Um, 
The word here is, is it right? Uh, tohu wabohu. Um, and the darkness covered the face of the deep to home. And a bunch of scholars think to home, that word for abyss, it's actually related to that Babylonian word for God, Tiamat. They both represent the deep, chaos. But notice, there's no battle that takes place in Genesis 1. There's no big fight. Um, the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, God just says, let there be light. There's light. God saw that the light was good, separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it was evening and morning. First day, day one. Um, so, first thing we have is just light. Light and darkness is the basic separation. Okay? Second thing, day two, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. Okay, so... Somehow we have light and darkness, nothing else. This is a physical dome, a dome in the midst of the waters. This notion of the deep, it's, it's watery, right? It's similar to the Babylonian version in this way. And you create a big old dome, and there's water up here. And under it, it's like a bubble, it's like a snow globe. And there's water down here. God called the dome sky. It's, just, it's being, being thought of here as a, as a thing, as, as a solid object, really. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. So now this divides out and you start getting mountains and dry land and seas and whatever else. Uh, and in other places in the Old Testament, you'll hear the mountains referred to as sort of the, the pillars of the earth. And they actually stretch down into the land below. They're like pillars. Okay, so you have pillars, you have a big old dome. So what do we have? We've got pillars, we've got a dome on top, so we've got a roof. We've got structure. This is a building. God is building a building in Genesis 1. I wonder what kind of building it is. This is fascinating. Oh, and one more thing. Um, God called us, uh, then let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind, and it was so, and earth brought forth vegetation. God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So we're three days in. And so, one, two, three, we get light, dark, and then we get sky, and waters, and we get land, and plants. Okay. Space has been created, but it doesn't yet have anything really living on it. I mean, kind of plants, but they're not, they're not here being conceived of exactly as living creatures. Watch what happens. Hasn't this always struck you as weird? Right? You have light and darkness, but you don't get anything to make light or darkness until the fourth day. There's a reason for that. Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. Well, now you start getting stuff popping up here. Um, right? All these little twinklies and the big one on the right and the little one. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Whenever you see in the Old Testament references to seasons, days, years, time like that, you should think in terms of ritual and sacrifice, the calendar. When do we celebrate such and such a holiday? Also, when does the harvest come? The, the, the festivals are timed for all of that. It's not just random timekeeping, right? Like, well, I need to know when my taxes are due or something. Uh, it's, 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 it's religious timekeeping. It's the liturgical calendar. 
of ancient Israel. Uh, and the lights are for this. Well, of course they are. The Babylonians, by the way, were the masters of this. Do you know why we have 360 degrees in a circle? Like, we count everything by else by tens. Why would you go 360 degrees in a circle? What is this? It's because the Babylonians were the master mathematicians of the ancient world. And they spent a lot of their time doing complicated math so they could look at the stars well. And their number system didn't go base 10, you know, 0 to 10. It went 0 to 60. And so 360 degrees is a multiple of that. We get it from Babylonian mathematics because they were the... They spent all their time looking at the stars. And when you get wise men from the east coming to see the baby Jesus, well, they're wise men from the east. They're guys who looked at the stars and knew all of this stuff about the stars. Because the stars are sort of divine things. But here in Genesis, they're not exactly divine things. The names sun and moon aren't used. Not the names of those gods. They're just called, God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That word rule is super important. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night. They're living creatures. They're active forces in the world. They are given to rule over something. That is a doing. It's not just saying, oh, isn't it nice that they're up there and we can guide ourselves by them. These are powers. But Genesis is also making it quite clear that however powerful they are, they're not God. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. So the fourth day, so you got one, two, three here of sort of spaces, and then four, well, we get, we're going to have light and dark, but here we have the lights themselves, and they're living creatures. And then what do we get on the fifth day? Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And so God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. Again, the great sea monsters resembling this stuff about Tiamat and the massive things of the deep, whatever. But here, they're not even gods. They're just creatures God made and put in the water. So we get birds and fish. Inhabitants, so that the lights are the inhabitants of the realm of light. And the fish and the birds are the inhabitants of the sea and the sky. Just like on day two. And then the sixth day. What do you get on the sixth day? Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of every kind, and it was so. God saw that it was good. Animals. And then one more thing, also on day six, you're filling up the land. Let us make, and here I've rendered it just as Adam, rather than saying human or humankind, he's using this word Adam. There's reasons for that we'll get into. But that's, that's the Hebrew word for this person, or for human beings in general. Let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness. So, rather than just let there be, it's let us make change in sort of tone from God. Let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle. Not over the lights in the heavens. We have no way of exercising that. But over everything else. These whom God has made and put in the center of this structure, surrounded by all these living creatures, including these 
lights that are ruling over what the seasons and the seasons of worship. So what's this structure? This is a temple. The whole world is being envisioned as a temple in Genesis 1. And within that temple, people are the last things made and given dominion over all of the other living creatures within the temple to be essentially priests over it. This is an extremely orderly picture of all of the cosmos as the worship of God, as the true worship of God. And the last things made are people in the image of God. And here we hear this against the background of Babylonian notions of a king or a priest as an image of God. Here it says people in general as the priests, as the places of manifestation, as the places of divine presence inside this world. So God created Adam in his image. In the image of God, he created him. There, that's singular. Male and female, he created them. Both in the particular and in the more general. Both in the universal and in the individual. Both male and female. Image of God. And when we hear image, I do want you to think in terms of what the Babylonians and the Egyptians meant by their statues. Only, here's the difference. The difference is not, well, those cultures had statues of God and Israel had nothing. It's not it at all. It's that those cultures had things they made for themselves that they called gods. And the Bible instead gives us the creature God has made for himself. It says, this is my image. It's not some craftsman who makes this. It's the Lord himself who fashions you. So this is my image. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Oh, this is rulership language big time. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then God says, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food to every beast of the earth and blah, blah, blah. All the stuff for food. And it was so. Notice your food is a gift. You aren't slaves to the gods. You aren't made for toil so that you can provide the food so that God doesn't have to work. God instead gifts all of this to you. It's a total reversal. Somehow the Lord God, the creator of the universe, right here in Genesis 1, has not only created you to be his image, but is providing you with things. In a very strange way, he's serving you. This is a radically different thinking about, about God and the whole world than, than Israel's neighbors have. But it, it also shares certain odd ideas in common that allow it to sort of communicate back and forth. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude, and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on, the, on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. That seventh day, of course, is what Israel calls the Sabbath. This isn't just something that happened once and then was ended. You'll notice something about this seventh day in comparison to all the other days. 
Genesis of days one through six. Every one of those days, and there was evening and there was morning, day one. There was evening and there was morning, day two. We get to day seven. Doesn't say that. Which means the seventh day doesn't come to an end. This whole passage is looking forward without end. Into what? Into the Sabbath of God, whatever that is. We'll get to that, but it's, it's, it's a very strangely forward-looking passage that we unfortunately almost always read as long ago, and I don't think that's the right way to read it. Yeah. Um, I don't know that. I will say this. Genesis 1 is a highly refined theological work by priests of Judah in all likelihood. Um, and in its current form was written down rather late. I say rather late, probably around the time or soon after the Babylonian exile. It represents earlier thinking. But here's the deal. If we read the Old Testament with eyes wide open, honestly, we will see that most of the people, most of the time, are basically pagans. That there's functionally no difference between how they went about their religious lives and their neighbors. We see evidence all over the Old Testament of them bringing the worship of the stars and the heavenly bodies even into the temple, right? This is why uh, this this is why there have to be sort of sort of purges. This is why there has to be purifications. Um, this, 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 this is why God can and the prophet through the prophets can just rail against idolatry. It's not just complaining about oh your neighbors are bad people. You Israel, what are you doing? What I'm describing here, this religion of the true God, was probably always a thin minority position within ancient Israel. So minority, there's a good chance Israel's neighbors never really noticed that it was any different. Because they rarely encountered it. That's, that's my best guess. The kings were always, when you make an alliance with foreign princesses, you bring them in, you bring their gods, the gods of the neighboring peoples into your temple, you have a nice god exchange, right? So it may well be that they had probably a statue to Yahweh in, like, Tyre or Sidon or something like that. Could well have been. Just among the various gods. We would say, well, that's blasphemous. We'd be right. But this is how they were actually doing things. This is why the prophets are so hard on the kings. Right? They're, 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 so what I'm saying is there was, there was a pure word from God that told the truth. But it was mixed into a culture that was completely compromised. And so we, we have to be honest about that. There's, there's, if, if Digging in the ground, we're not going to find a lot of evidence for an utterly different religious practice. Except for this. They really didn't see him. The one thing you would expect to see in the center of the temple in Jerusalem, what does every temple have in it? It's got the statue of the God in the, the important place, in the Holy of Holies, in the central location. And the description of the temple of Jerusalem doesn't have that. Which isn't to say there's no image of God there. There is an image of God there. There's a high priest there. And I, do I have this text in there? Uh, look and see if you've got one from... No, I don't have this text from Exodus there. Well, that's okay. No, I, 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 I do, actually. Well, I have a little bit of a text from Exodus, but we have a description in Exodus 28 of the vestments of the high priest and got all of this stuff. And got, at some point, we have the turban of the high priest that he wears. Um, 
Does anybody remember, do, does anybody remember what, this is a very specific question, so the high priest of ancient Israel wore a, wore a turban, and it's got something on the forehead. What's it say on the forehead? It says, holy to the Lord. It's got the name of God on it. And he's wearing a breastplate with all these jewels and his gold that has also the names of the tribes of Israel on it. And that means when he goes in and stands before the ark, he's bearing the names of the people of Israel to God. And when he comes out and when he speaks to the people, he's got the name of God on his forehead. So this priest is the image of God for the people. In a very significant way. It's not that Israel didn't have one, but the only image of God that, that God would tolerate is the one that he himself made. Uh, I do have a little bit of a, a snippet from Exodus 19 here on the bottom of the page. Um, second or third page of your handout. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. There's the limits of God's presence wherever I want to be. But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Now, we have a huge problem that comes forth in this. Huge problem is this. So it's one thing for the Babylonians to say that King, when he does the things that Mark does, like defeat evil, is Mark or is the image of Mark. It's quite another thing for Genesis 1 to say about human beings in general. Notice there's no description of sin in Genesis 1 at all. <clears throat> that human beings in general just are the image of God, all of them. Well, that includes all sorts of people doing all sorts of blasphemous things, right? It's one thing to say that the prophet of God or the high priest in the temple are the image of God, but just the human beings in general means that also includes the king of Babylon and the high priest of Marduk and the priests of Seth and Ra and all the other Egyptian gods and, 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 and some guy in Central America around the same time offering human sacrifices to his gods and other people doing, you know, my ancestors on the shores of the Baltic doing whatever pagan things they were doing. That's madness. That's, that's humanity and all of our sort of wickedness and twistedness and all of the crazy diversity of things we do, saying this is image of God. It seems immediately problematic. And, and so it, it's a problem that needs, it needs to be worked through. And it does get worked through in, really, in the history of Israel. You see this. Um, you see this tension between particular divine representatives and the universal statement about humanity. So maybe humanity in general is not representing God well, but you, Israel, shall be my chosen people, my priestly nation, the nation that represents me to the world, to all of creation. Israel doesn't do a good job of this. But at least you, sons of Aaron, shall be priests in here to represent me to the people, you see? You get more and more particular as, as the problem gets worse. Um... Now, within this, but, but notice this. There's still no the ditch we talked about between God and humanity. It's not there. Oh, there's sin, and that's a huge problem. But God, God's presence and activity within and through human beings is assumed in this. God doesn't keep his distance 
from human life. God is in the thick of it, inside of it, doing. And we don't get a, uh, oddly, we don't get a definition here of image of God. There are two other places it shows up, Genesis 5 and Genesis 9, where it's explicitly named. And neither of those gives us a definition. Genesis 5 talks about Adam when he had lived 130 years. He became a father of a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Adam is the image of God. Seth is the image of Adam. Is Seth not also image of God? Well, Genesis 1 would seem to say he is. Genesis 9, we got Noah here. So we know that sin's in the picture here. We know that sin's in the picture in Genesis 5 and Genesis 9, but this is still repeated. Um, Notice that in Genesis 9, there's a lot of stuff that's uh, resembling the creation accounts. But there's no doubt that humans are doing really wretched things here. That they're, they're, they're faithless. But here... Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, for your own lifeblood. Now God's giving a warning, at least to you who do not obey me and who are very poor representatives of me. I will surely require a reckoning from every animal I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed, for in his own image God made Adam. And you be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. Here, image of God is used, if nothing else, it's not really defined, but it's used as a warning. A warning against human violence. Uh, remember that the one you do violence to, the one you oppress, the one you kill, the one you enslave. Yep. Uh, we're going to go a little bit over because we started late. You took ten minutes from me, I'm claiming them. Uh, you know, the one you oppress is also image of God. <laughs> right? In Babylonia, the one you enslave was made from the blood of a wicked God anyway. He was made to serve, to be a slave. In Israel, there's a reminder that even, that even in the midst of our violence, that your enemy is the image of God. That's an extraordinary thing. Let's see. Other examples of divine representatives. Moses and the golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain after speaking with God, and he's shining with the glory of the Lord. Um, oh, boy, that's interesting. This bit from Isaiah 40 that I printed out. I love this. We have to go through this. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? Hmm. And then there's this description of making an idol, a very physical description of making an idol. As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Cool. The prophets of Israel are very familiar with how you make idols. It's, this is what I mean by this was constant in the culture. This isn't Isaiah warning other peoples. This is Isaiah speaking to the exiles of Judah about their idolatry. Isaiah 44, the blacksmith takes a tool and works it with the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm, his own arm, not God's. The carpenter measures the line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. 
He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. In other words, you've made something in the image of humanity. But there's also a recognition there is glory in the human form. Why is there glory in the human form? Because we're the likeness of God. Even idolatry, in a bizarre way, shows forth the truth of creation. Because our idolatry, in which we make gods in our image, is a nothing but a twisted version of the actual truth, which is God made us in us. He cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. Half the wood he burns in the fire. In other words, look, this is just stuff in creation. Over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat, and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. See the fire? From the rest he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing, their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. The things you make to be a god can't be gods. Your rituals, your washing and opening of the mouth, they don't work. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. The forgiveness of sins and the redemption of Israel are now tied up in this notion of God making his own image, his own people, for himself. Isaiah 48, see I have refined you, though not as silver, not like an idol. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction, in your suffering and in your death. And these are in the chapters of Isaiah where you get this funny character showing up. This who is he, this servant of the Lord, this mysterious, this one whose likeness was so marred that he hardly resembled a human being. The one of whom it said, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and by his wounds we are healed. Starts to show up in these same very chapters. That one himself, as we'll see in the New Testament, is finally identified as the living and true image of God in whom we all live. So. So back to Genesis 1 for just a second. David, too, occasionally gets called this kind of a divine representative, the kings of Israel. Skip over that. It's not as important. Back to Genesis 1. Let's talk about what Genesis 1 is. Some priest, it seems, wrote, recited, knew these words, maybe used them in a liturgy in the temple. You know what? It would be unfathomable of the priest who wrote these words of God. God literally creates the world by speaking it again and again. Didn't also understand that in, that in speaking... For this God who creates by speaking. Because it's the priest's job to speak. To give words from God to the people. That this priest doesn't understand. That in speaking for this God who creates by speaking. He is not himself acting as a divine image. As a place where the Lord himself makes himself present for his people. In his word. And actually you get all of these words. Israel is a priestly nation. We get all these words associated with divine presence in the Old Testament. With a divine body. As it were, as if the incarnation is always the case. Words like glory. The glory of the Lord fills space. The glory of the Lord fills the tent of meeting so that 
nobody can actually go into it while God is in there because it's actually filling up all the space. And this is God's presence in the midst of the camp of the Israelites as they move through the desert. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. The word of the Lord isn't just an idea. The word of the Lord is a physical, material coming of God to his people and these little vibrations and sound waves that enter your ear holes and come to you. God occupying space and being close to you and God even coming to you in the bodies of other humans. So more on this in the next session, but just a taste. If it's given to the priests to speak words of God because they image God in this way, might it not be given to you too? Then, precisely what preserves us from idolatry, from false worship, it's not smashing statues and hiding away images. It's openly declaring people to be what God's word states them to be, the image of God. It's restoring that image by proclaiming the forgiveness of their sins in the blood of Jesus. It wasn't idolatry when people bowed down before the high priest who had the name of God on his forehead. This was commanded as proper worship. Because from him they would hear true words from God. True words that told them who they were. And likewise, if the servant of the Lord in in Isaiah is at once Israel and something much more, well... Now we're heading into what we're going to talk about in the next session. So, thanks.